Hi, welcome to Audio Smut, a radio show about your body, your heart, and your junk. I'm Mitra, and this episode is all about love maps. A love map is a template. It's the map of what we like, who we like, and how we like it. So, our romantic tendencies, our dating patterns and habits, our type. This sexologist-psychologist named John Money came up with the idea in the 1980s. The idea is that we all have one, and it tends to be pretty specific, right down to how exactly we need to be touched to have an orgasm. But more on that later. For now, we're going to start with a bit of a deviation and put this theory on its head for a moment. If the idea is that the love map is created by experiences and social norms like our expectations of what sex is, what gender is, and what our junk is supposed to do when we put it in contact with other people's junk, then we at Audiosmut want to know what your love map would look like if you didn't really fit into those social norms. Listen. Johnny and Janie, who are past childhood, are not yet quite grown into manhood and womanhood. They are in between. Johnny and Janie, Johnny, Janie, manhood, man, man, woman, woman, in, in between. This is Carrie. He's in his 40s, living in the Midwest. I was assigned female at birth. I mean, it was pretty clear to me by the time I was, I don't know, five or six, that my body didn't work the way other people's did. So I had um, what was uh, phrased as an enlarged clitoris, and I had two very small vaginal uh, passages. So penile vaginal intercourse I saw as like a duty of a, of a human being <laughs> who was going to procreate. So I knew that, and I thought, well, I have to do it. And I knew that by looking and poking around that nothing was going to fit <laughs> in the passages that I had, and you were supposed to have one of them, and I didn't know what was going on. And so I invented for myself, you know, in the early 70s, the concept of dilation, <laughs> and um, attempted to, like, expand... Um, one of my vaginae, um, to make something fit in it. Some people use it to help relieve tension, others for body aches and pains. So set the time and relax. Now just 978 So, um, I went and, um, through a mail order catalog ordered a back massager that was clearly a dildo, (laughs) clearly a vibrator, but not advertised as such. It was like white and medicinal looking. Many people find that, um, that dilation doesn't work very well. Um, and, and I was one of them. Um, but I was doing this completely unsupervised. Since my first memory, I've always been capable of masturbation. So I was you know, sexual as a small child with myself and always was. Um, and my stuff worked just fine that way for me. Um, 
but I knew that I, that I didn't know how I was going to combine this with other people. Meet Beta. Beta is an intersex trans woman. I wasn't told that I was intersex and I had corrective surgery as an infant uh, that I don't remember. I possess a vulvic arch and something analogous to a clitoris at the top of it. So from an early age, I that's what I masturbated with. Growing up was odd for me. I, I strongly remember uh, fifth grade sex education and the boys had to watch a film and the girls had to watch a film and then the girls watched the boy film and the boys watched the girls film and I was sitting there waiting for them to show the film that described my genital configuration. I felt that my gender assignment never really fit. And, and so that was something that was always in the back of my head. And I spent many, many years, you know, asking other boys in the locker room, hey, you know that thing above your penis and, and you sort of stick your fingers into it and feel around? And everyone was like, uh, no. I wound up uh, having sex mostly with straight women who expected PIV from me and that, that I would provide the penis. And the head of my penis is almost entirely absent in sensation. So for the longest time, sex for me was just sort of going through the motions and not orgasming and feeling almost ashamed to mention that, that I had this other way to do things. The idea that I had in my head was that all men had this clitoris that was too scandalous to talk about. It was never seen in porn. It was always hidden. Everybody denied it was there. And so I always felt like it was something that I shouldn't mention because no other uh, boy identified people were mentioning it. The same year that I became sexually active, I started taking estrogen. And it wasn't until I was 26 and I was with another partner that... Um, she said to me before we were about to have sex, you know, your bits don't look right. I wonder if you're intersex. And I was able to find in this horrible medical records warehouse in North Philadelphia, I was able to go and find my birth records and request a copy of them. The first time I saw a gynecologist, I was 16, and I really, I scammed to get to see one. And I knew that there, you know, that this wasn't, that I was atypical, and I wanted to find out more about it. So what I did is I pretended that I wanted to get a diaphragm, which I didn't at all, um, and I went to Planned Parenthood. As a matter of fact, I had to get my mother to take me to Planned Parenthood. <laughs> she, like, dutifully was like, oh, God, okay, took me to Planned Parenthood at age 16 to get a diaphragm. And this was all a scheme because I really just wanted somebody to look at my stuff and say, whoa, what's going on? And what actually happened was that it was a huge clinic 
um, in New York, and there were just hundreds of people waiting, and there was this big assembly line. So, you know, I got, I sat around a paper garment for all this time, then I, like, went in, got on the table, and they, like, immediately slapped some goo on me and tried to shove this metal speculum into me, and it wouldn't go. <laughs> not only would it not go, and the woman's, like, pushing harder and harder, uh, but it really hurt, and so I'm sitting there trying, like, not to scream or something, and she says, what's wrong with you? And I wanted to say, well, that's what I wanted you to tell me, but I just said, I don't know, and she said, well, we can't do this. You should use condoms, and sent me off, and that was that. So Beta found out she was intersex when she was 26. It wasn't until Carrie was 40 when he had all of his internal reproductive organs removed and biopsied. It was at this point that he got the final diagnosis that he was intersex. Intersexuality refers to a whole set of different physical variations in which people have bodies that are different from the expected ideals of a male and female binary sexed uh, pole. So intersex people could be different because of chromosomal variation or because of genital variation or because their gonads are different. Um, some people are visibly intersex at birth, instantly identified uh, at that moment. Other people, it's not something that's so visible, and they uh, are found to be intersex later in life. And uh, people who are intersex and genitally variant today in the U.S. still are usually um, altered uh, surgically in infancy in an attempt to make their genitals look more conforming. I've always been fascinated by technology, and so as soon as I had a high-speed internet connection, I, uh, I entered Second Life. Second Life is a multiplayer role-playing game where people interact with other people, or their avatars, rather, in a virtual world. Eventually uh, wound up making a sort of androgynous femme avatar, and I opened up a nightclub. where we could all play music and, and do little geeky animated nerd dances. I was doing research uh, on avatars and the way that people embody in them. A friend of mine said, hey, somebody I know is interviewing androgynous and, and otherwise gender non-conforming avatars, and so... Carrie showed up, and I, I don't even remember which of his many avatars he showed up in. And uh, ten minutes into the interview, I was in love. And he, he has transcripts of this, and I can I can point out the place where my heart went all a flutter. <laughs> the first um, nine months of our relationship were entirely virtual. We were partners in Second Life and um, we were engaging sexually. Um, and we were doing that in like all sorts of creative and fun, totally um, physically impossible ways. I recall one of, our, one of our first sexual encounters and I don't know who steered it this way but we played it out as as merging galaxies and it was really hot in a way that astrophysics often isn't <laughs> <laughs>
After nine months of dating in Second Life, and 1,000 very real miles between them, they decided that it was time to meet. In neutral territory, where nobody knew who we were, so we went to a little sleepy college town in Massachusetts with a good sushi restaurant, and... Uh, um, but... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I remember the first minute that I saw Beta in real life in which... I feel like I totally recognized her, and she looked shocked. <laughs> I was not what she was expecting at all. <laughs> all the photos I had seen of Carrie were amazingly unflattering. <laughs> but here was this person that, that was playful and bright and creative and... And so I thought, well, you know, it's not just the flesh that we're in, but it's the spirit that animates them, and I will go meet this person. And Carrie was a lot cuter than I expected. <laughs> and so so that's the shock, I think, that Carrie is talking about, was that I saw him, her at the time, mm -hmm. sitting there and just being absolutely adorable, and I wasn't uh, quite prepared for that. <laughs> They shared a hotel there and had sex in real life for the first time. The bed was enormous. It was it was a king-size bed, and so when I was really nervous and shy, Carrie had to pursue me all around <laughs> this giant mattress. Um, he was the he was the first partner that didn't explicitly make it clear that he wanted penis from me and so we were free to just sort of grind into each other and grin it was sort of at a at a shabby bed and breakfast and uh they had jelly beans yes <laughs> and sort of the world's saddest included breakfast uh and so so I'm a late sleeper and Carrie's more of an early riser. So Carrie would sneak me hard-boiled eggs from the strange little kitchenette. And and so to this day, every time I eat a hard-boiled egg, I think about, I think about breakfast in, in Northampton, Massachusetts. After the first time they met, they returned back to their homes and spent their time together in Second Life. And every couple of months, met up again in real life. Eventually, Beta moved to the Midwest to be with Carrie. They are now married. We're married. We're married. <laughs> but what we did at our for our wedding, which was um, a little over four years ago, was to get invite all of our friends from Second Life to join us. Um, and so we had a wedding that was also at the same time sort of a gathering of all of our friends who were from all over the world in a big pile all at once. So it was fun for everybody. And it's especially fun for us because we're getting married. Um, but, you know, we we wore wings. <laughs> yes, big fairy wings and and strappy, strange industrial combat boots. And the, the guests played us the Imperial March on purple kazoos. The Imperial March from Star Wars. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they later got legally married in San Francisco, 
On our wedding day was the first and only time that we had uh, penis in vagina sex and, you know, did the missionary position thing for what, probably about 90 seconds before we both looked at each other and started laughing. You know, is this doing anything for you, dear? It's like, no, is it, is it doing anything for you? <laughs> no. Okay, let's, let's go out and get a pizza. <laughs> So we didn't actually go out and get a pizza. We had a really good time doing other things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we went through a whole lot of crap individually, but you, when you are educated through that sort of ordeal, you come out a really, um, you know, that you have a certain level of enlightenment, which would be really great to share with somebody else who could appreciate that. And I have found somebody else who really can. <laughs> Um, and she's holding my hand now because she loves me <laughs> and, and it's really, you know, it's excellent. It is excellent. Carrie and Beta live together in the Midwest and have been married for about six years. If you check out the AudioSmut website, audiosmut.ca, you'll have some links to Carrie's blog for more information on intersexuality. Now, a dating love map, as in who's your type, what's your pattern, are a little easier to quantify. And we found someone who quantifies very diligently. Meet Jen. She's 5'3", Asian, 32 years old, and single. Jen thinks about life experiences in rows and columns. I love quantifying and organizing data in spreadsheets. So I started a Google Doc, which documents every makeout partner, ambiguous boyfriend, and lover that has drifted in and out of my bedroom. I plotted the ones promoted to boyfriend status and included columns like sexual milestones reached. For example, there is a column for first base, second base, and another for, did I suck his cock? I can't remember. There's also information on who dumped who and did we keep in touch, if we met online and things like that. A few statistical takeaways. 26% of the people I've kissed have turned into boyfriends. 74% were open arrangements. And 54% is the percentage of times neither of us talked about what happened. For this episode of Audio Smut, Jen tried to summarize her dating patterns by extracting data from three case studies. Case study one, Eli, February 2012 to February 2013. He was a black and white photographer and looked like a mini James Dean in his leather motorcycle jacket and pompadour. But unlike James Dean, I'm totally colorblind. I'm not red-green colorblind. I see in shades of gray. His life was like a black-and-white movie. His appeal. Eli also just never really went away, despite the fact he knew that I was seeing someone else. So he kind of grew on me. The arrangements. It was so unconventional, you know. You and I were hanging out, but you were kind of making plans to get something going with another guy. How it ended. I think we started to realize we were, we were pretty different. And I think at that point, I think I started questioning 
would we really be compatible? I was more interested in a relationship where we would spend time together and continue to get to know each other. It started to feel mundane. We were done. Old news, ex-lovers. Notes on my dating pattern. Yeah, it seemed like maybe um, you were interested in pursuing people that weren't 100% available. Case study two. Jesse. September 2008 to December 2008. How we met. A-train, rush hour. I was wearing pink Doc Martens. He was wearing brown Oxfords. He was... Harry. Tall. Buck tooth. A graffiti artist. Big belly. And a break dancer. He also had an affinity for Asian women. He made the first move. Yo, yeah, we met on the train. Docs are pink. I was like, damn, I want to get in the pink. Oh. <laughs> His appeal. We were like two commitment phobic peas in a pod. As opposed to having a girlfriend, he preferred to have a dating associate. You know, in business, you have associates and you have partners. Uh, a partner uh, has a stake in the company. An associate does not. So I think a dating associate uh, does not have a stake in relationships. The arrangements. I wouldn't define it with a label. Thoughts during the relationship. Finally, I'd met someone as avoidant of commitments as I was. We joke about who would dump each other first, so I had thought about beating him to the chase. But he won. How it ended. Yo, two words. Black salad. Seriously? The, The black salad was like the nail in the coffin. I'd gone to Chinatown the night before and got a great deal on a bag of lettuce. I prepared him a salad with it, but it wasn't the freshest. It was also served in the dark, so I didn't really think he'd notice. Beyond the deal-breaking salad, relationships weren't really his priority. Being in New York, I really wasn't interested in being emotionally involved with anybody, uh, mainly because there's just so much variety down there. Uh, You know, unfortunately, the more choices you have, the more uh, choices you can make. Case Study 3. Jonah. August 2000 to March 2002. Also, Jen's first boyfriend. I met Jonah in my hometown. He was a... Young, spiky-haired kid who wore, like, loud, obnoxious Hawaiian shirts. A Pixies fan and a lover of Basquiat. He made the first move. I want to say the first mixtape I made for you was intentionally suggestive. It opened with Screaming Jay Hawkins. I put a spell on you. Because of mine. The arrangements. You wanted to be in an open relationship, and I kind of didn't. Thoughts during the relationship. The problem that I had with your idea of an open relationship was that you were never really open about it until after the fact that something had already happened. How it ended. Ah, well, I moved to New York for starters, but we kept in contact. He made me another mixtape. This time, Ween's Birthday Boy was on there. It sends a very different message than the first mix. 
Jonah moved back to our hometown. I guess I thought we were dating, but then I think this went back to you wanting to be in an open relationship. From that point on, the relationship had run its course, and I had no desire of committing to Jonah. And so... I think the mixtapes just stopped. I don't think I wanted an open relationship. I think I just wanted to, like, be together. Notes on my dating patterns. I told him that my open relationships had remained constant since our split. What had changed was my forthrightness with my partners about my open arrangements. I just think that you were young, but you just had a really bad way of being open about it. The whole dating thing was probably really new to you, and it it seems like you have a healthier frame of mind about your love life now, (laughs) so I hate to put it. After I reviewed my cross-section of lovers spanning my 13-year dating history, skimmed the list and reminisced, the following patterns kept emerging. I'd fantasize about escaping and ending the relationship, felt relief that it was over, and desired an open arrangement. So, 13 years, 39 lovers, and 10 boyfriends later, my greatest pattern seems to be in pursuit of fleeting moments. I cling to the highs of new relationships, and long-term compatibility is secondary. In rejecting societal norms of should have been married by now and embracing my single status, I've done a year in review of my other friends' relationship statuses. Jane, married at 23, divorced at 30. Mallory, single at 35 after a failed marriage with a cheating heart. Ida, 32, two kids, divorced twice. I'm in no rush to the finish line of divorce and will embrace multiple lovers while I figure out who and what I want. In the meantime, I've started my next Google Doc spreadsheet. The list of people to do before I die. App developers, magicians, tomboys, firefighters, women's studies majors, and hot twins. Hey, that was Jen. You might remember her from the Pooh show. At 31, I continue to have vivid dreams about Pooh that have haunted me since I was a child. We can always count on Jen to give us some insight into her love map. We have one little treat left for you. We went on a very physical love map search. We started by asking how people like to be touched particularly in places that are not normally equated with sex, like your junk. I like to call this piece the climax. I, I used to tickle myself to, to sleep because it was, it's soothing. I, th- I don't know, I don't know how to explain it. I was in the library at school and um, this girl, Brittany, came up to me and was like, I want to show you something. There was one time, there was this man, there was a moment where I must have done this on purpose, where I sort of like lifted my t-shirt and my, and I just like, my belly was a little bit visible and he was like, oh, I have never seen. 
And he just like gently put his hand on my belly. And she took a pencil and the top of the pencil where the eraser is, um, she ran it along the rim of my ear really slowly. Usually, um, if I'm trying to extend the foreplay, I find a way to disappear and take off my bra so that um, I'm still wearing whatever it is I was wearing, but I'm now braless with hard nipples kind of showing through my, my top. I guess we both kind of woke up, couldn't see anything, it was pitch black, so I just pulled her pants down a little bit. It wasn't the the touch itself, it was like how much he loved it. Just feeling a person's breath on you. Feeling that for the first time gave me a sensation that really, I mean, I felt like I couldn't control my body. And it's just like this kind of pleasure that came with it. It tickled a lot. Felt amazing. Tickled. And I do my best to prance um, and see if that's noticed. Maybe rub myself on him, pout a little bit, ask for some attention. Runs her hands down at the back of my neck and it feels like she's literally touching every single strand of hair. A very light sort of brush contact. Not being touched. Kind of the power play of someone inching closer and closer. Soft mouth and gentle tongue, like a tongue that just sort of like critters along that There's area. There's like a direct line and I'm very aware of how hard my nipples are and that is somehow connected to my clit. Being plated over my underwear. A breath on them or a pinch through a shirt. Light finger stroking. Having them. And I start really obsessing. In your arms. You can just sort of come for, I don't know, I 10 or sucked. 20 minutes. I want him sucked while my clits played with. Control my body. The unexpected aspect this kind of, of it. pleasure that came with it. Reaching around. A shirt ripped like off so that the cold air blows on them. Um, or a breath is spoken on them. This concludes our Love Maps show. Thanks for listening. This last piece you just heard, The Climax, was first debuted at Audio Smut's Sex Ed event in June. If you haven't yet, go to our website, audiosmut.ca, and check out video and photos from that night. It was pretty magical. This is the last show of the season. We'll be taking a little hiatus and scheming funding strategies for the next few months so we can make the time that we spend on Audio Smut a bit more sustainable. If you want to help us out, which you should, donate at audiosmut.ca, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. That way, you can find out what we're up to during our off-season. And hey, you should tell your friends to listen, too. This episode of Audio Smut was produced by Jen Ng and Caitlin Prest, with help from Felix Ramirez and Julia Alsop, and me, Mitra Kaboli. 
Thanks for listening.